BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, June 27th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you could subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Swell, or on any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and many other topics, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And the best part is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace, no homework, no exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its really great courses. This is Stress and Your Body by Professor Robert Sapolsky. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. This week, I interviewed comic artist Zach Wienersmith, whose very popular webcomic called Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial has a significant scientific bent. Um, what's more, he's also passionate about teaching us how to distinguish good from bad science. So one of the things that we talked about was how science actually works. Here's what he had to say. I feel like there's this unfortunate notion among most people that um, what a scientist does is get data and then the data tells them what the conclusion is and that's how science is done. Um, and of course, the, the actual process is quite a bit messier, uh, which probably makes it more fun. But I think that public often get misled by the idea that it, you know, getting science is kind of like, I don't know, digging up gold nuggets or something. So, Chris, what do you think about that? Well, I, what I think that is is a, is a very uh, philosophically astute description of what science actually is. Uh, if you read the literature on science studies or sociology of science, they will tell you just uh, what uh, Zach Wienersmith just said, which is that, you know, it's not all eureka moments. It's hard work. And in many cases, so different scientists can have the exact same data in front of them and they will come to different answers about what it means. Uh, so I say yeah. bravo for explaining that. <laughs> and, you know, we also spent a little bit of time talking about, you know, just so stories or ad hoc hypotheses, which are, you know, essentially the addition of extraneous uh, information to a theory to save it from being falsified, right? You just continue to add things ad hoc. Uh, and so he had some interesting things to say about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm glad that he's actually through a comic strip being able to teach people a little bit about how science works and uh, reaching a big audience. It's a real help. Yeah. 
So that'll be our interview for today. But first, we want to welcome on the show with us a guest uh, to talk about the goings-on in science this week. And she'll be very familiar to our regular listeners, Cynthia Graber. She is a print and radio journalist who actually hosted our great guest interview with Michael Pollan back in January. It's actually our second most popular show ever. And Cynthia is the author of most recently an article for PBS's Nova Next entitled, The Next Green Revolution May Rely on Microbes. And this article did so well that it was actually tweeted by Bill Gates, which gets a lot of retweets. It's totally epic. Cynthia, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me back. Let's start by talking about this new article of yours. Tell us a little bit about why you think that microbes, or in many cases, these are, these are fungi, that live in symbiosis with plants could have this huge effect on the global food supply, which obviously we really need to do something about as populations continue to grow and climate change comes on. Well, so I think that this is absolutely fascinating, personally. I mean, microbes are an intrinsic part of plant life and health. Think about how much attention the human microbiome has gotten. It's kind of the same for plants. You know, microbes, and actually, we I did concentrate on fungi, but it's also bacteria, even viruses and so on, that live in the soil around plant roots and even throughout the plants, help plants access nutrients in water and combat pests and so on. They're absolutely critical. But modern agriculture has either ignored this relationship or at times actively harmed it, not necessarily on purpose. So now researchers and companies are trying to optimize microbes to help plants grow more, beat off bugs, survive droughts, etc. And my story focuses on a few such researchers, primarily one team. You have Ian Sanders in Switzerland. He's literally breeding microscopic fungi that live on nearly all plant roots. His idea was that if we've been breeding plants for thousands of years, maybe we should take the same approach to microbes to help improve crop yields. So I followed the research from him and from his Colombian partner. Her name is Alia Rodriguez for the past year. And they're showing they can grow more food with lab-bred microbes. And they're far from the only success in this field. I also spent time with a researcher and company owner in Seattle named Rusty Rodriguez, who's developing microbes to help farmers. He's no relation to Alia, I should point out. So I often hear criticisms of GMO foods, for example, um, with this exact idea in mind that, you know, because the GM foods are bred to be resistant to the sort of fauna and flora around them, that we're actually really messing with this kind of microbiome and, and that that's really deleterious to the plants themselves. To what extent can you can you talk to the effect that GM foods in, in particular have on this kind of, I guess, soil microbiome? Uh, and and whether that's something that we really should be worrying about or whether it's in the interest of GM companies to really focus in and make sure that they're not destroying the good microbes. So in terms of, of genetically modified crops, I don't know personally, you know, a great deal about how much that's harming the microbiome. What I can say is that a lot of the the ways that these crops have been developed by these seed companies is to be able to resist particular, say, herbicides, which are then sprayed more liberally. And those herbicides, you know, so one of the things about these chemicals is that they don't just disrupt the other plants around and kind of allow the crops to grow, but they do harm the microbiome as well. And that's something that has been shown and that that effect it can be pretty dramatic. I haven't looked into any research about how genetically modified crops are themselves directly harming the microbiome. I would say that the repercussions can definitely be there. So I actually thought Indre's question was going to go in another direction. And, and I was going to ask whether, you know, the anti-GMO crowd is also the anti-microbe modification crowd. <laughs> I mean, do you get that uh, kind of blowback for this? 
So I haven't heard anything about it so far, mm-hmm. and I think part of it is that it's it's really new. Uh, secondly, they're not actually modifying microbes in the same way that right. there's concern. They're not engineering over, them, you know, I guess. They're breeding. They're them. not engineering them. He's genuinely breeding them. Before Sanders' research, actually, people thought that these particular fungi grew clonally, that they just reproduced themselves, and he was the first one to demonstrate that they actually exchanged DNA and that you could actually breed them, and that's kind of what gave him the idea in the first place. But if you look at what some of the other companies are doing, they're harnessing bacteria that are already out there or fungi that are already out there and figuring out how to best use them in in farming. So many of these companies aren't necessarily tweaking them as it is. They're just trying to figure out how to optimize them. You know, you can think of it as like probiotics for the soil. And in Ian Sanders and Alia Rodriguez case, they are actually developing new forms of microbes, but they're just breeding them. So this also reminds me of, of sort of the, the whole idea of an invasive species. Um, you know, are, are they introducing fungi that normally wouldn't be in a particular part of the world? Um, and, and is there any risk that this might become an invasive species, you know, like, like zebra mussels in, in certain lakes in, in North America, et cetera? It's certainly something, you know, that the scientists I talk to all are aware of this as a concern. It seems to be less of an issue than something like zebra mussels. I mean, the the world of the microbiome in the soil and in the plants is messy. There are thousands, if not millions of species competing for the same space. And I can say that Sanders and Rodriguez are testing to see how that the, these new lab-bred microbes are affecting the diversity of the microbiome and the around the plants that they are studying. And then uh, researchers like Rusty Rodriguez, what he's doing in, with his company in Seattle is they're going out and finding the fungi that live on plants in extreme environments and trying to use those to help uh, to help crops survive swings in water and uh, swings in temperature. And what he's doing is some of the fungi that he works with live in plant leaves. And so he's testing toxicity to animals. So they're certainly concerned about the same types of concerns that you're voicing. And they're certainly, you know, trying to make sure that this is not something that will happen. Uh, but, you know, one thing that I would argue as I've been doing research on this is that most of the crops that are grown around the world are themselves not native to the areas where they live. And so, you know, their microbiome might not have necessarily been totally native to that region in the first place. Uh, But it's certainly a concern that they're looking out for. And have you seen any change in the taste of the food that's that is it affected by the microbiome um, as it's manipulated by scientists? As it's manipulated by scientists, I don't know yet. I mean, this some of this research is really pretty new. There are biopesticides, as they're called, that are used extensively in, say, soy. Um, you know, the one kind of really popular biopesticide that's already out there, it uses a, a bacillus, it's a, a bacterium. And I don't, as far as I know, I don't know how much that affects the taste. There is... There is some understanding among scientists that if you have a really healthy soil, which means a really healthy microbiome, that you have better tasting food because it's these microbes that are helping the plants access the nutrients that they need. So in terms of manipulating the microbiome, I don't know, but, you know, they're certainly trying part of the work that they're doing is trying to help the microbiome be as strong as it can be. So that can might be able to help our crops taste better. You know, I can just picture the next generation of super tasters, like taking a little bit of taste of yucca fries and saying, you know, damn, this yucca was clearly, you know, made with the wrong microbes. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of pseudo experts. I, I don't too. have enough taste buds for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this is no, this is fascinating, and it sounds like this innovation has huge potential. So, Cynthia, thanks for um, telling us so much about your uh, your new story. Sure, and I hope you'll uh, stick with us a little bit. We're going to talk about some other science in the news kind of topics. Absolutely. 
Okay, so here's the next one that I, I really wanted to draw attention on. Obviously, the world is obsessed with the World Cup. Maybe that's I redundant. I am certainly but, right now. <laughs> yeah, and I am too. Um, and earlier this week, Italy got sent home after losing 1-0 to Uruguay. Mm-hmm. But the game is mired in this controversy because, and everybody knows this, right? Because one of Uruguay's top players, the striker, Luis Suarez, appeared to bite an Italian defender, Giorgio Cellini, um, just a few moments before that goal happened. And Suarez is known for having bitten other players in the past. And FIFA just ruled on this, and he has been banned from the rest of the World Cup. So yeah, uh, I was just to say, like, doesn't he have a nickname? Uh, you know, the cannibal. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just kind of sh- boggles my mind that this man has continued to be allowed to play. <laughs> well, and I would say getting him sent home is a score for soccer and a score for human hygiene. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. So I did a little bit of research to figure out, you know, how are there any complications from human bites? You know, is this is this just something that sounds gross or is there a real kind of health danger? And it turns out that not surprisingly, of all the bites that you can get, the human bites are the most dangerous in terms of your risk of infection. So um, some wow. like 10 to 15 percent hmm. of human bites that break the skin become infected. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a big number given rates of infection generally. And here's another mind blowing statistic. One. One percent of all emergency room visits are related to mammalian bite wounds. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> like one in 100. That's kind of amazing to me. And they cost us, you know, something like, and this is in the U.S., by the way, the U.S. Um, and, and in the U.S. alone, they cost something like $100 million a year in healthcare costs. So, But mammalian bite wounds, is, that's not just humans. It's not just humans. That's right. It's all mammals. Uh, although the human bites, of course, are the ones that seem to be, uh, you know, pretty much the nastiest. Uh, now, and there's sort of two ways that you can get a human bite. One is that obviously you actually get bitten. But another one is just by punching someone, right? And having their... their their teeth break your skin and so a lot of these fist bites actually come you know that's why a lot of a lot of people that come into the er with bite wounds are inebriated so i mean obviously that didn't happen in the case of these soccer players um but you know you can get nasty things like syphilis hepatitis even hiv from a human bite now you know i looked at some of the footage and i it was hard to tell whether suarez actually broke uh Chiellini's skin uh but if he did i certainly hope he that Chiellini has a tetanus shot and you know has his vaccines up to date um, uh, because that could certainly be dangerous. Why is the human bite worse? Why? Because there's so many germs in your mouth. (laughs) But but not in a dog's mouth? Um, I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess guess just the way that the saliva is, is, uh, you know, put together, uh, that for some reason we are more susceptible to infection from human bites than, you know, the the saliva of other animals. Well, you've also got all these people who are going around pretending to be vampires, you know, and so you have to wonder... Um, whether they're, I mean, not all these people, but I think that, you know, the, given the vampire obsession, you know, I think people are biting each other. So they, yeah. so they really, they really need to watch it. Yeah. Stop that. <laughs> or maybe we should invent some kind of like bite condom, you know, that you can like, I don't know. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for going into the medical literature for us on that. Um, I want to, uh, direct our attention to one more thing that's come up in in science uh this week uh and let me let me just, it's going to take a little bit of unpacking uh, but the relationship between your hormones those chemicals that course through your body and your political behavior and in 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 a way never has there been something so heretical in political science 
and yet also so obvious and hard to argue with than that who we are biologically shapes what we do politically. But for a long time, political scientists have looked pretty much everywhere except to biology to explain how people vote and what side they're on and how much they pay attention to politics and whatnot. But now scientists are starting to publish serious research on the biology of politics. And it's looking like hormones are involved not only in whether you're like a left or a right person, although it looks like they are, but also whether you're interested in politics at all and whether you go out to vote. So I thought I'd list some politically relevant hormones based on the literature, and we'll start with cortisol distress hormone. And, you know, when you your body has a stress response, this is what gets pumped in the bloodstream uh, to help you get ready for challenge, threat, what have you. But people are different in their baseline cortisol, okay? And so some people just have a lot more of it in their body all the time. And this leads to them being fear-sensitive, so, sort of socially avoidant. But in a new study from the University of Nebraska at Omaha, it turns out that there's a correlation between this baseline cortisol and not turning out to vote. And they didn't ask people just, you know, do you vote? They actually went to the Secretary of State and got their voting records and correlated that with their cortisol. They're spitting in a, they're spitting in a straw, right? And so that's actually an amazing thing that they actually find a link between those two things. But, but so you if can you imagine, wanna... though, if someone who's pretty stressed out, you know, voting is kind of a luxury, right? I mean, if, you, if you're stressed out about losing your job, you're not going to take the time out, you know, or you have childcare to worry about. Voting is something that, yeah, I can see how someone who's stressed would say, yeah. I just don't have time. Someone chronically stressed. Well, that's what they, that's what they found. Um, so, you know, if you want to really suppress the vote, all you have to do is make people's lives difficult. So, in other words, require like three forms of identification. That'd be great for making people not vote. And we're kind of heading in that direction in some ways anyway. Um, so, let's go on to another chemical. And this is actually technically a neurotransmitter, not a not a hormone, dopamine. This is the stuff in our brains that makes us want to seek new experiences, pleasurable sensations, rewards. And researchers are hypothesizing a link between it and being a liberal. Okay, so people, uh, uh, you know, people who like lots of change, lots of new things, they want to go to different restaurants and talk about, oh my God, I've never, you know, I've never tasted, let's go back to something else on the show, never had yucca tasting mm -hmm. like this, right? <laughs> you know, these are... Um, there's published research linking a gene variant for a dopamine receptor in the brain to political liberalism. And, Andrea, you want to Well, I was just going to say, so just, yeah. just to be pedantic, because, you know, I am, um, dopamine is also a hormone. So, it, you know, okay. it, 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 it is both a neurotransmitter in the brain and a hormone in the body. So, were they looking... Did you, did you figure out whether, you know, they, they, they looked at dopamine in your brain or in the rest of the body? Uh, well, then this study, it was just a correlation between your actual genetic sequence. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, so actually, I don't think they had to look at it in the body at all. But I think this is just the beginning. Um, so, they're looking at a, you know, gene coding for a kind of receptor. Right. So, neurotransmitter um, a, a then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one more political hormone, oxytocin. Okay. They call it the love hormone. It strengthens the bonds between lovers, does a lot more. And so... People have sprayed oxy, oxy, oxytocin, and it makes people more generous in sharing money with each other, but it looks like it has a darker side, this hormone, because one study suggested that it makes you want to cooperate with people who are like you, who are in your in-group, but not cooperate with people who you perceive as being an other or an outsider. So, this might, might be a tribally related hormone. Um, so, in conclusion... Um, 
we've long said that personality is associated with politics, but personality is just the sum total of your cognitive and your physiology and all your patterns of responses. Um, so now, in a, in a sense, maybe some of the chemical precursors for that relationship are being found. And it's a brave new world for political science, and it makes people uncomfortable. But, you know, you can't unring this bell, so you probably shouldn't even try. Well, I guess my question is, are we going to have a pill now that you can take that will make you switch parties? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a you know, what's the Woody Allen movie where the kid is like a Republican um, throughout the, almost the whole movie. And then they find out that he has a brain tumor <laughs> and then it gets it gets removed and then he's liberal. Do you remember that? Yeah. There's some Woody Allen movie where that happens. So he was ahead of the curve. Uh, why not? It's theoretically possible. You could also maybe get people to vote more. Yeah, that, that would be well, helpful. Certainly maybe lowering their stress levels might help people vote more, as you were discussing uh, at the beginning. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, and so, you know, absentee voting, mail voting, all these things that make it easy rather than hard uh, would be all contributing to less stress. And so that's the, I mean, that's the big pro-democracy implication of the, the latest study. It'd be interesting to see if uh, countries in which stress levels are generally lower have higher voter turnouts or more apathy be an interesting test of this this theory because certainly in in highly stressed countries that have just become democratic voter turnout is generally very high well and you know israel is certainly a very highly stressed country and you have extraordinarily high voter turnout there and there are countries where voting is mandatory and if you don't vote then the government makes your life miserable (laughs) it's a different kind of stress (laughs) so yeah and there they have high turnout because if you don't then you actually like you can have penalties various kinds of paperwork uh, actually, I kind of support that option, too. Brazil is one of those, and Australia yep. is one of those. Cool. So thank you, Cynthia, for being on the show with us. Thank yep. you. Thank you. And let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Zach Wienersmith. So if you're an Inquiring Minds listener, and you are, then you are probably the kind of person who is intellectually omnivorous Basically, you never, ever want to stop learning. And of course, we're just like you, and that's why we're big fans of The Great Courses. The Great Courses has been in production for over 20 years, and they offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. And we both checked out one of their courses recently called Stress in Your Body. This is by Stanford professor Robert Sapolsky. And you know, this whole series of lectures dovetails perfectly with our show today because, of course, cortisol, which we just talked about, um, seems to have implications for people's voting behavior, is one of the principal hormones in the bodily stress response that is so lucidly explained by Sapolsky in these lectures. Yeah, he really does a great job of explaining the effects of chronic stress and acute stress on our bodies. And, you know, he talks a lot about some of the great work that's been done. And let me just tell you about one uh, experiment that always kind of makes me shudder. You know, there's, let's say you have a rat in a cage and every once in a while you give it a shock and you know, the rat gets stressed over time you can see the effects of stress on its body but then let's say you have a second rat in a cage next to him and the only difference is that yes that second rat gets shocked just as often as the first rat but he also can then go and bite the first rat well guess what happens it turns out that second rat has a much lower stress response because he's able to find an outlet for his frustrations. You know, he, he's found a wow. hobby. Uh, so, you know, I'm not suggesting that we go and, and, and bite someone every time we get stressed, but, you know, it gives you an idea as to how this whole system works and, and how we can, if we have healthy coping mechanisms, we can actually learn to minimize its effects on our bodies. Yes, and I think the World Cup should make every player hear about that experiment. Exactly. Okay, so, right. So, um, for a limited time, only the great courses is giving our listeners a special offer uh, you can order stress in your body 
and get 80% off of the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a short time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Zach Wiener-Smith. Thanks for having me. So you're probably best known for the comics that you create every single day called Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. And so I wanted to start out by asking you to tell us how it was that you came to create comics that are based on scientific ideas, critical thinking, rationality, and so on. I uh, I actually started doing the comics just for fun, which is, I think, true of most people in my... uh so to speak, generation of cartoonists. And then at a certain point, I was working this nightmarish Hollywood job and I wanted out desperately and comics was sort of a uh, distant uh, distant light uh, down the tunnel, but I somehow managed to do it. Um, but there, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't exactly a, a sort of conscious moment of deciding I wanted to do a comic about anything in particular. So were you always interested in drawing comics about science or was that just something that came out organically out of your own interests? That, that was very organic. What it was is, um, the, and this is the very short version, but I, when I, I was working in this horrible Hollywood job and I just hated it with an undying hatred and then I was able to quit um, and then I found I had a very low stress life, which is good for being a human but bad for productivity. Uh, so at least as an uh, artist or whatever I am. And uh, so I decided to to go back to college to get a degree just partially because I thought it would be, you know, uh, useful in a self-cultivation sort of way, but in, in a big way just to introduce some more stress into my life. And um, I ended up uh, falling into physics, which was a lot of fun. And uh, that, that's sort of the wellspring of all of the science jokes. You can actually see, I think, that would have been around 2006 and the, the really dorky jokes don't show up until around then. And so you also have become known for a particularly, let's say, um, questionable theory that has garnered some recognition academically. And so I wanted to jump right in and talk about that. And this is your notion of the evolutionary basis of the infant, um, shall we say, shape? Is that is that a good word to use? Uh, I prefer infant adaptive aerodynamics. Yes, that's much better. So tell us a little bit about your theory, um, and then we can sort of evaluate the evidence for it. So the, the basic idea is that there are a bunch of traits that babies have that are not shared with adults. And you, know, you, you can chalk some of this up to just uh, uh, development of the baby over time. But a lot of it is better explained if you assume that the baby would have been placed into a catapult and let fly in order to further spread the genetics of the parents. So to give just one example, babies are largely hairless. And interestingly, this is true even if you go to, say, Inuit tribes that have lived in the cold for a long time where it would be clearly beneficial to have hair, the babies are still hairless. And this is because, uh, or it's at least very well explained by our theory that uh, the baby would have been shot into the air and uh, needed to have uh, the least amount of air drag as they soared towards a nearby village. So there's a lot of other evidence that infants have evolved aerodynamically, so to speak. Um, so one of them you mentioned in one of your talks is that, you know, if you blow on a baby's face, they find it very calming uh, and they kind of seem to mm -hmm. enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And so we, uh, as I say in my talk, um, we know from Galilean relativity that um, a baby moving through air is physically the same as air being pushed past a baby. 
So when an adult blows air past a baby, it simulates the feel of the baby soaring through the sky. And that's why the baby closes its mouth because if it, if it didn't, if you have any avionics people listening, they'll know you'll get a, an eddy current happening in the baby's mouth, which will create all sorts of aerodynamics problems. Uh, in addition, uh, it might also fill the baby with air, which would increase its two-dimensional cross-section, uh, uh, wind-facing cross-section, uh, which would generate a lot more air drag. So it it, um, it it makes sense that this is a reflex uh, that's adapted for aerodynamics. And you, you should also consider that there's no other way to explain it. Um, it. It doesn't make sense that the baby should have this reflex unless it is uh, designed to fly through the air um, uh, via catapult. That's right. And there's also, you know, we have a term for babies that are filled with air, uh, and that's colic, right? You know, we feel that, uh, you know, if they have too much air inside, it's actually p- physically painful for them. Uh, and so we need to burp them in order to get the air out. Right, absolutely. Uh, and they, they, they would not be able to do it on their own. That's right. And the other piece of evidence that I found particularly compelling is that babies love being in the air. They love being spun around. Uh, they love to be in these kind of flying positions. So how did you first make that discovery? Well, it, it, once you accept the theory, it's pretty clear. I mean, in the same way that you, for example, only love your parents because uh, you share uh, R equals 0.5 with them, um, and uh, maybe you, you you love a sibling because they have a relatedness to them and for no other reason. Similarly, um, you know, you look at your offspring as a genetic payload and the offspring is thinking about its own future offspring. So when the baby has the sensation of flying to the air, in an evolutionary sense, the baby is thinking to itself, well, uh, this uh, will allow me to subsequently to my landing mate with a more genetically distinct population. And that's where it gets the pleasure sensation. Right. And there's another way in which we can make this more pleasurable for the babies, which you talked about too. Um, sort of based on some of your historical evidence, you, we see that there are sort of large images that we've created, say crop circles or the sphinx uh, or the chalk uh, uh, drawings in the UK that are really only appreciated from the sky. So, you know, do you feel that perhaps some of these uh you know, big things that were created for the benefit of the babies. Yeah, I think, again, it's it's the only theory that properly explains it. So if you consider the Nazca lines, these are enormous uh, macro structures uh, of, of uh, the, these simplistic, iconic drawings. So why would you ever make a drawing that people on the ground can't even see, um, which is also at the same time iconic and cute looking? There's only one reasonable explanation, which is that it's designed for a baby to be flying over it and remain calm in flight. So this theory is not without its detractors. Mm. Um, have you had much pushback from the scientific community with respect to this particular idea? Pushback? Um, some people think it's uh, adaptationist, if you will. Um, but I think at some point when you... Uh, look at the various threads of evidence because we have, we have evidence all the way from avionics to genetics to history i think eventually you have to accept it yes and so just like all great just so stories it does have a lot of layers yes so i wanted to um talk a little bit more seriously now about where this idea for infantapulting came from and um you know why is it that you decided to create uh, such a talk uh, so we I, – I did a comic a while back uh, that essentially had that idea and it was actually a little – during the original version, the baby was being dropkicked 
Um, and I thought for uh, for a, a, an audience of semi-normal people, that might be a little upsetting, or at least it would be hard to make slides. But uh, so I had this idea, and then as, as sort of a half joke, I asked my I think I asked my Facebook group if they you know if, if they would go to this, and it was a surprisingly large response. Um, people who said they would go out of their way to get to the show if I did it. Um, so I got in touch with Christina Shu, who at the time worked for Bread Pig, which which is still my publisher. And we got in touch with a student committee at MIT and we managed to put together this show. And really, I mean this, to my amazement, a thousand people came um, uh, to this, this like really dorky show. I mean, if you watch it, like Tomer Ullman has a, a section where he has uh, – he's done some agent-based modeling on uh, uh, infant – or not infant, but uh, tribal conflict based on infant stress vocalization. But but he actually worked out the math for real. It's not even for pretend. Um, so it was a really dorky show and a thousand people came out, uh, which is amazing. So this is the bad ad hoc hypothesis festival. And I hope – I hope in, you know, the deep – parts of my heart that all of our listeners realize that we have been joking uh, for the last <laughs> few minutes. Um, and, uh, and this is, of course, in, in reference to this festival that you've created, um, in which people put on, with all seriousness, uh, talks about bad hypotheses. So why did you choose evolutionary hypotheses as kind of the crux for the bad ad hoc hypothesis festival uh, partially just because that was the the original idea in the um comic actually the, in the comic the show was supposed to be called the festival of bad adaptationist hypotheses but we, we thought we'd keep it a little more broad in case we want to expand in the future um but it's also uh, biology evolution is something everybody gets on some level so for example we talked to a guy briefly about doing he, he wanted to do a chemistry themed one and i just thought there's no this is certainly not a general audience thing, but I don't even know like what a funny bad chemistry theory would look like. Um, whereas biology is pretty infinite and it's got a pretty low barrier to understanding. Um, so we, we actually do have some ideas for expansions, but we're, we're trying to sort of keep it to topics that a nerdy lay person could understand. Um, and I, I think evolution is probably the best of those, uh, but th there are probably a couple areas you could do without too much trouble. Yeah, and evolutionary psychology is particularly <laughs> rife with uh, some, um, you know, horrible just so stories and, and often, you know, gets a bad rap as an entire field, uh, let alone, you know, just some of the truly egregious theories. Yeah, we, we, were, we were trying to be a little careful because I, and I say this in the, um, in the full version of the show, like we're, we're not actively trying to make fun of Evo Psych. I, I think people have the impression that we are. We also, we had a couple of people that thought we were making fun of evolution per se. But I, I personally don't know enough about professional Evo Psych. I, I, I try to take care of making fun of it because I, I, I feel like – I mean you probably know better than I do. I'm sure you know better than I do. But it, it seems like a lot of the critique of Evo Psych is actually critique of portrayal in the media of Evo Psych. I, I personally don't know too much about how the field itself behaves. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And there is, there's a, a lot of good work being done in Evo Psych, uh, but there's a lot of bad misinterpretations <laughs> of it. And, um, you know, that's one of the beauties of BaFest is that it actually informs as a, in addition to entertains the audience as to how you should be thinking about and evaluating science, um, that you consume. Yeah, that's, how, that's what I think is the, the best thing about it. I, I hope people come away with that is that all of the theories presented are, almost in a certain sense like logic puzzles because they're all plausible within their own confines. Like a really good example is uh, Justin uh, Werfel did a graph 
that associated the length of roads in a country with um, obesity in the country. And there, there was a positive association. And I actually don't know exactly how he cheated, but I asked him when I saw it because it's this beautiful graph. I asked him if it was for real. And he said – I forget exactly how he phrased it, but he said, nothing that I left in is not true. Um, and so uh, I assume the implication is there are all sorts of countries that didn't fit his best fit line that he just chucked. But I feel like that's good because you know in advance that the theory must be wrong because that's the oeuvre of the show. But you have to kind of figure out why. I mean sometimes it's obvious like with mine. Uh, but some of them are a little more subtle and I, I think it's good for people to uh, think a little about how they're thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think really you've just you've just hit the nail on the head, which is the biggest problem with a lot of media interpretations of science and some science uh, in particular as well is cherry picking, right? Cherry picking your data um, and just choosing items that fit your hypothesis uh, as opposed to, you know, getting looking at your data and having your data generate uh, the hypothesis. Yeah, I feel like there's this unfortunate notion among most people that um, what a scientist does is get data and then the data tells them what the conclusion is and that's how science is done. Um, and of course, the, the actual process is quite a bit messier, uh, which probably makes it more fun. But I think that public often get misled by the idea that it, you know getting science is kind of like, I don't know, digging up gold nuggets or something. Yeah, and I also think a lot of people think that science is really about just figuring out the tools that you're going to use in order to study something. But in my opinion, science education really is about design of experiments. Uh, and that's really what you spend a lot of your time. It doesn't matter what particular field you study, um, what you should be doing primarily during your undergraduate years and during most of your PhD is figuring out how to design a good experiment. Yeah, no, that, that uh, you know, my, my wife is a parasitologist. So I, uh, we have a lot of um, late evening walks where we talk about uh, science stuff. And I, I suppose, come to think of it, a lot of it is questions about what would it what would it prove if we did the experiment this way you know absolutely and and, and now that uh you are, you are a new dad so congratulations oh, yeah thank you thank you uh yeah <laughs> uh, so so is your infantipulting still hold uh, have you have you had the desire to um catapult your child over a mountain yet <laughs> we we I haven't had the opportunity i was actually talking to uh um we're setting up a BAFES this year. We're doing two this year, but one of them is in San Francisco. And I was talking with um, Kishore Hari, who runs the – or actually, I don't know if he runs it, but he's one of the <laughs> important people. He at, does uh, run it. He we does all run know it. Okay, Kishore. good. All right, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so he runs the uh, Bay Area Science Festival. And uh, I was talking to him because I really wanted for my original presentation to have a wind tunnel experiment. And I, I couldn't make it work. I, I, I was at um, – or my wife, I should say, was at UA Tuscaloosa, um, University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. And I tried to get they, – they have, they have a pretty good um, aviation department there. And I um, I really wanted to use their wind tunnel, but we couldn't prevent uh, – uh, get convince a professor to let us do it. Uh, I really – like I wanted to do one of those things where you have um, colored gas that you run past an object in a wind tunnel to see what the turbulence is. Um, but I I couldn't make and it happen. You you would put your baby in there? No 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 I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think Kelly would would allow that. I might uh, in a vacuum I might but uh, but no no uh, but uh, I would like to I mean I can I can I suppose I could three D print a model of exactly my kid uh, to, for the experiment. Sure but, yeah now you're not? thinking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so one of the things that we love about the BaFest videos, the really great, great ones, is that there are, there are tons of aha moments that make us laugh. Uh, and this is really also the essence of a comic, right? Is that you kind of 
take a person down a story and there's an aha moment and suddenly, you know, we make an unexpected connection between two things that, you know, we didn't think were connected and that gives us a sense of pleasure or makes us laugh. So is that a little bit about how you how you structure your comics? Do you consciously think about what these aha moments are? Uh yes and no. My 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 general theory of uh Creativity is that um, the, the the brain. There, there's no way to sort of actively be creative. What you do is you. I, I I suspect. I don't know if there's any way you could ever actually look at this, but uh, I suspect what's actually going on with people who are thought of as very creative is they're good at two skills. One of which is generating uh, connections rapidly, and two, editing out the garbage quickly. Um, and so I I think. Uh, what, what what I try to do mentally when I sit down with a blank page is just try to think of good ideas. And I think if I have any skill I've acquired over time, it's just to sort of quickly throw out the garbage. Um, I think I think you can't – I don't think you can sort of actively try to think of clever connections. You have to just be around interesting stuff and, and sort of hope it comes to you and, again, be a good editor of yourself. It sounds a lot like data collection to me, frankly. It it, it kind of is, uh, yeah. So it, it it's it's a little abstract, but I actually think it's useful to think about how you're thinking um, if you're doing this kind of work. Because if you accept that premise, then what you ought to do with your time is try to put as many different ideas and modes of thinking in your head as possible. And so that's that's become my work routine since I had that idea of of how work ought to go, and it 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 has definitely helped me avoid writer's block like I used to get before I thought that way. And you're, you know, you're extremely prolific. You put out a comic every single day. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little rough, but uh, it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so do you have moments where, you know, you really feel like you don't, where do you get your inspiration if you do have a block? Um, so my, uh, my thought on writer's block is it doesn't really exist, um, or does it, it doesn't exist the way like influenza exists. It's, it's, um, so my rule is if I have what is called writer's block, it's almost invariably because I haven't been reading enough. And it's kind of confirmation bias, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I can look at any time where I've had a lot of trouble writing and it turns out I've either not done much reading or the reading that I have been doing is of a low quality. Like it's not uh, – like it's um, guilty pleasures or um, stuff that's not very challenging or stuff I'm already familiar with. Um, so so yeah, what my, my rule is if I if I can't write – something fairly quickly, I will go read a book. And especially I might go read a book that's difficult. Um, that seems to help. And so what other outlets do you look to to get your sort of scientific ideas in particular for your comics? I really try to only read books and textbooks. I, I, I read a little news online, but um, I feel like the really good and novel ideas come from more in-depth reading. Uh, so I, I do try to read the hardcore stuff. I try to read textbooks and uh, really really understand as much as i can what people in a field are thinking which which also provides an additional benefit because i kind of think all pop science books are in some way the same um like i feel like if you, when you're reading pop science you don't necessarily get a, a flavor of what the field is really like whereas if you start reading textbooks or you know more deep essays and papers you you start to get a sense of the way of thinking in a field which i think is, is not necessarily determined by the content of the field. It's partially just cultural. It's partially just holdovers from how the field was in the past. And, and that's often really interesting. And so often I think people look to your comics to also learn. It's not just to be entertained. And so, you know, do you feel a sense of responsibility to get the science right? Or is that something that you feel you leave to the scientists and, um, <laughs> you know, you just, you draw? I, I, I feel, I, I don't, how do I say, I, I feel sort of, 
responsibility to professionalism, I guess I should say. Like if I'm if I'm trying to make a point about something, I ought to have it right. Um, so I, I do my best. Although the, the problem is, I feel like creatively, there's this kind of sweet spot. Um, between knowing nothing, in which case you can't really write a joke about it, and then knowing a lot, in which case it's, it's still – it's hard once again because every now and then – like I had a joke I, the other day about the efficient market hypothesis and I sent it to a friend who's an economist and she uh, was like, oh, I don't want to kill your joke but here's everything that's wrong with it, you know. And so it, it it's funny because she was like, it's funny but it's slightly wrong and I, obviously she couldn't let that go. And so I – you know, with, with – I I feel like the best jokes I have about a field tend to be ones I make when I'm just starting to learn it. And what's interesting is the people in the field seem to like those jokes better. Um, so I don't know. I think there's something about being new to the field which allows you to make broad, mildly uninformed statements that are perhaps funnier than uh, more correct ones. So you do keep the incorrect statements. Do you put like a little caveat? <laughs> I, do, I do. Well, well, I usually don't know they're incorrect when I say them. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so if I'm if I, I I don't remove them because I, I have a sort of feeling of artistic integrity about that, which is probably uh, ill made. But so it goes. Um, but I um, try really hard not to be wrong. If I'm completely wildly stupidly wrong, then I will put in a little footnote or something. But but. I li- it doesn't happen too often, at least, or at least maybe people don't tell me too often when it does happen. But uh, I do try to be pretty good about um, knowing what I'm talking about. So in addition to Saturday morning breakfast cereal and BaFest, you also have another project uh, for which you have created a Kickstarter campaign. And this is Augie and the Green Knight. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the project? Yeah. So uh, as, as you said, I, I suddenly have a daughter. And so all these uh, issues of... Um, social sexism or low expectations for girls are suddenly extra personal. And I had wanted to do kids books for a long time anyway. Um, and then I had this idea I liked. Uh, and the short version is it's a book about a scientifically precocious little girl who sort of slips into this fantasy world from a medieval romance and kind of tries to make it behave, uh, tries to make it be rational and scientific and kind of fights with it. Um, it's also an adventure story and there's lots of fun and jokes and stuff. But, uh, but, uh, what, what, what is, I don't know, sort of philosophically important to me is that it's about a girl who is, uh, risk taking, who, uh, goes out and does stupid stuff and is a bit heedless of the consequences, which I think is a character you don't see too often. Absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, a, a wonderful idea for a book. And I, but I also wonder to what extent, you know, sometimes by trying to, you know, create a role model, um, you know, we, we almost encourage the stereotypes in a way by going against them. Do you know, do you get what yeah, I'm saying? No, I, so, I totally agree. I, 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 so I, I hope I haven't done that. And I, I should say, I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, we're, we're, we're kind of pitching it as a book about a scientific girl, but it's first and foremost, it's, it's a book I thought I was happy to write. Um, it's a character I like, um, and it's fun. Uh, so, I, I, especially, I didn't want this character to be a role model because, as you say, I think it it discourages people when they see impossible characters. I mean, she's an impossibly smart character, but I mean, so is Sherlock Holmes. I think it's okay to be a bit aspirational, but I didn't make her like an ethical paragon. Like, she acts conceitedly at times, she misanalyzes situations at times. Um, And I also, one thing I want to be really careful about is I think there's a tendency, especially by men trying to write women who are tough. To make them sort of uh, like unvulnerable, um, which I think I think is bad because it, partially, as you say, it's it's unrealistic, but also um, uh, it's just bad writing. 
I, uh, you know, I feel like when you when you set out to to create a moral paragon, you end up with a uh, with you know Horatio Alger books, which I've actually read, and they're not very good. Um, and uh, so I, I didn't set out to do that. I, I I really was just trying to write a book that made me happy, or book uh, the kind of book I would like to read to my kid. Um, so it, it does have a lot of that nerdy stuff, but I I hopefully came by it honestly. Um, that that's the main thing to me is that the the story to a reader seems like it's honest um, that I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to pull one on them. This is a character I'm actually happy working with. Well, certainly. I mean, it's, it sounds like a fascinating book to me and, and the illustrations by your collaborator, Boulay are oh, yeah. the ones that I saw at least are, are really beautiful and, and compelling. Um, and, you know, you have successfully marketed it, one would argue, <laughs> uh, because you have a Kickstarter campaign uh, that you initially wanted to raise $30,000 and you're almost at $300,000. <laughs> so yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, let us know. So, you know, you've, uh, you've exceeded your expectations by almost tenfold. Why should we give you more money? <laughs> um, well, so what we... I, I should say the way we structure our Kickstarters, uh, which I think is is kind of the honest way to do it, is when I say our goal is thirty thousand. Uh, I think we actually did the breakdown, and if we if we if we had raised exactly thirty thousand dollars, we would have lost about a thousand dollars to make and ship the books. Um, so so thirty thousand is the sort of make this thing exist goal. Uh, so beyond that, um, I'm, I'm not actually sure the point at which we start making a profit now, since we've thrown in a lot of stuff. Um, so so my first defense is. Uh, is um, we we may not be making as much as people think, um, but the other thing is uh, the way we like to do it is the the baseline book we were going to offer was was already really nice. It was important to me that we had a really nice book because, as I say, it's a book I want for my daughter. Uh, but by uh, allowing people to you know choose the level uh, of their contributions, we we can add stuff into the book. So we ended up adding a bunch of really cool stuff. My my favorite thing, even though it's a really cheap edition, uh, is the uh, we we're going to have a little bookmark ribbon in the book, which I find really charming. Um, so it's stuff like that. So uh, one thing, for example, is now we've gotten to a point where we can afford to do an audiobook, which I won't say how much it costs, but it's surprisingly expensive uh, to uh, to do an audiobook. Um, and we also wanted to hire someone really talented. We got um, Ellen McLean, who is uh, known for uh, being the voice of GLaDOS in uh, Portal, and among other things. Um, so she's doing the book reading. So I, I suppose basically the reason you should give me more money is mainly because you want the book. Uh, it is priced at retail, but also because it means we can throw more stuff in uh, for free. And so what made you decide to publish this kind of on your own as opposed to pitching it to a publisher? Uh, well, I I shouldn't get too hoity-toity about it because we, we are now showing it to publishers because people got interested after the Kickstarter. So I, I am apparently not philosophically opposed to traditional publishing. Um, however. My my thought, honestly, when writing this, I probably shouldn't say this, but w- was that it was um, uh, there's a word I think Gertrude Stein was the one who used it. It's in French. It's inaccrochable, which means unhangable, as in reference to a painting. Um, and this this book was, um, I think, in to my mind, in that category. There's, there are really nerdy jokes. Like there's a there's my my favorite bit, and I, I don't think it'll spoil anything. But there's there's a part where. Um, Augie has to sort of prove her worth to the Green Knight, and one way she does this is this um, this uh, creature comes and uh, from another kingdom. She's the sort of queen of another kingdom, and she comes asking a question. And the question is, um, you know, you know the problem of Solomon. If you have these two claimants to a baby, how do you decide who who's the right mother? 
Um, and so the Book of Solomon proposes a solution. It's actually game theoretically not a very good solution, but set that aside. Uh, the, the question posed is how do you do that for N um, mothers? Say there's three mothers. What is what is the appropriate way to split the baby? Um, and um, and so which is probably all, already too grotesque, but 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 also just it it, it ends up it's a fairly um, I think for most people involved math problem. Um, but I think it's interesting, so we we put it in. Um, so I think th- there's a lot of stuff like that, which I assume if I showed to a traditional publisher, uh, they would be confused by. Um, so I don't know if it will get in traditional publishing. We're, we're shopping it around a bit now, but I, I guess time will tell. Um, but so in long story short, because I've already given a long story, I didn't know if traditional publishing would take it. So I thought we'd just do it ourselves and do it the way we like. So I guess the lesson is never underestimate the power of nerdery. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I hope it goes over well. I mean, I, I've only shown it to my friends who are really dorky, but they all like that sort of stuff. So, uh, so well, you have like six thousand plus backers. So yeah. I would say, you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I have like total imposter syndrome about it though, because I'm like, only a few people have read the book. Everyone's kind of taking my word on it being good. I mean, we you know, we put out a little snippet and there's Boulay's artwork, which is, I think, worth the cost alone. But, but people are kind of taking my word and I'm starting to get nervous about it. <laughs> well, I'm sure it will definitely exceed everyone's expectations. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, and, you know, speaking of nerdery, uh, there are two opportunities coming up for people to actually submit their own bad ad hoc hypotheses. Two ba fests are coming up. One is in the Bay Area in, uh, I believe, sometime in the fall as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. And another one will be on the East Coast. So tell our listeners some tips for what they should do in order to get, you know, a spot at the ba fest. How, how should they put together the video? What are the important things that you're looking for? Uh, well, so we have a few do's and don'ts on the website, but but basically go watch what Tomer Ullman did. I mean, they were all good... Um, Corey McLean was also really good, but our, our, our favorite was, was Tomer. And for his submission, actually, he also had the best submission. He, he actually sent like a one page long, um, monograph. Like it was, it was mistakable for a scientific paper. He had really worked it out. Um, he got the right sort of deadpan feel. There weren't jokes worked in. It was the joke was the existence of the paper. That's what we're looking for. So really what you need, I mean, you have to have a good idea. That's important. But having had that, um, you know, give it a little polish, um, cause, cause that's, uh, that'll really make you, um, stand out. The, the other thing I'm, I'm encouraging people to do, uh, cause I didn't even notice it until, um, after the last show is if you have a theory that doesn't involve humans, we will, we'll give it an extra look. Um, because on our last show, um, I think we only had two people who, um, did non-human stuff, uh, in the show out of seven, which, you know, considering that all creatures evolve is a bit chauvinistic. Um, uh, interestingly, I don't know if there's any, anything to this, but it was, it was divided on gender lines. The five men did, uh, human theories. The two women who, who were the, I think also the only two ecologists, uh, actually did animal theory. So if you have an animal, uh, non-human animal theory, uh, we'll give it an extra look, I think. Well, that, that gender story seems a little bit ad hoc to me. There. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in any case, yes, uh, I will be submitting a animal theory that I've been working on now that I know that I shouldn't be catapulting my own infant. <laughs> so for our listeners, if you do want to participate in the Kickstarter for Augie and the Green Knight, you don't have any time to lose. It ends on July the 2nd. And to get to it, type in Augie, A-U-G-I-E on kickstarter.com. 
So with that, uh, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Zach Wienersmith. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Okay, so first, I, I want to disclose that uh, no babies were catapulted in this in- episode of Inquiring Minds. That you know of. Um, that we know of. I'm not right. making any but, promises. <laughs> right, okay. So this is a wonderful interview and a lot of fun. And uh, what, a, what an impressive uh, science entrepreneur he is. And uh, you got to salute another thing uh, about Zach Wienersmith. He knows how to walk right up to the edge of going too far in humor and yet somehow not manage to fall over it, which yeah. is always an admirable trait. Absolutely. I mean, he doesn't seem to offend. And yet, you know, by all intents and purposes, the, the topics that he talks about should really be offensive. But he somehow manages to charm his way through. Uh, and also, it's, he's just so smart. You know, he really knows his stuff. And I think that this whole idea of he, he, he eschews popular nonfiction uh, uh, for textbooks, you know, that's that's pretty impressive to me in terms of science consumption. I just wonder if there's any like complete clown out there who's totally not gotten his joke and taken him completely out of context and said that he wants you know babies to be catapulted or something. I don't know. Knowing knowing the web, you oh, know, God. there's somebody Gross. who actually probably took it all literally. Don't even say that. <laughs> It probably happened. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And just like Stan Clark did, you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or recipes, anything else you'd like to Inquiring Minds at ClamicDust.org. And I want to thank Stan for his wonderful cheesecake recipe which uh, is delicious and I have to say that today I finally hit my pre-baby weight um, but it was not thanks to the cheesecake that I consumed (laughs) (laughs) that is a good listener sending cheesecake recipes send more or remind you again that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses which is bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with over 500 courses on science history philosophy fine arts and more The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And best of all, you can listen and watch the courses at your own pace. There's no pressure of homework or exams. And now, for just a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price for one of its courses. The course is Stress and Your Body by Professor Robert Sapolsky. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to learn more. And once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash Inquiring Minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And also, I'd like to give a special thanks to Ashley Hansen at KDVS for helping us record this week's interview. And we're your hosts... I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.